online, on digital and on FM. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back to The Seventh Generation, the show that looks at all things environmental in our region and beyond. We're here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city in South Cambridgeshire and I'm your host Nick Skelton. And in this episode, which we've called From the Ground Up, we're looking at COPs, climate COPs that is, the Conference of the Parties. Obama signed the US into the Paris Climate Accord at COP number 21. Trump pulled the US out. The new president, Joe Biden, has just signed it back in again. The annual COP international meetings on climate change have been going on for 25 years now and, as Greta Thunberg pointed out, carbon dioxide levels still keep going up. Now this year, the UK is scheduled, pandemic permitting, to host the 26th Conference of the Parties, COP26, in Glasgow this November. But what is a COP? Why hasn't it worked as intended? Who are the parties that get to have a say? And how will the voices of the people be heard there? To find out, we first got in touch with Nathan Sankey, coordinator of the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice which coordinates activities at the COP for a huge number of international organisations. Here are our reporters Michelle Golder and Sarah Strachan with additional questions, talking to him online. Welcome, Nathan. Hello, thank you for having me. To start with, can you just tell us briefly about your organisation, the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice, it's quite a mouthful, and its involvement with the Conference of Parties, which we will call the COPs from now on. Sure. So the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice, or DCJ for short, is a network rather than an organization. So it is a large, sprawling network held together by a sort of common understanding of the climate change crisis and features over 200 different organizations around the world. We are the main coordination of climate justice groups within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change which is the framework under which the Conference of the Parties takes place. Before we go any further, I think we should say what a COP is. Okay, so the COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. And in this case, we're talking about the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC for short. And what the COP is, is the ultimate decision-making body of that convention, but whenever we say COP, what we're usually referring to is the annual summit, which takes place in the latter stages of, of every year, which involves the Conference of the Parties, but also involves all these other bodies that are meeting at the same time, such as the decision-making body for the Kyoto Protocol and the decision-making body for the Paris Agreement, as well as the sort of permanent, what they call subsidiary bodies that do a lot of the technical work. So briefly, if possible, who are the parties? So the parties differ for each of those decision-making bodies, which is part of the complexity, but essentially it's every country on earth. So to be a party, you have to be a UN-recognized state and you have to have signed up to the UNFCCC and the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. So where do the organizations within your network fit into that? Some of the member organizations of Demand Climate Justice have been there since the start, and some are, are newcomers, some are more grassroots groups that focus 
on community organization, on resistance to dirty energy projects, for example, on advancing people solutions. Some of them, maybe you wouldn't even consider climate organizations at all, like the Indian Hawkers Federation, which campaigns very vociferously on the transformation of the energy system and on energy access for all. Other members are focused on advocacy on high-level international spaces like the COP as their sort of bread and butter and involved in the very technical policy work and negotiating side of things. But all are members and all see an opportunity in the COP. So Nathan, as Michelle said, the COP has been around for 26 years. Why do we still need one? And what's your involvement with that? Well, on one hand, we don't need a COP in the sense that climate policy, you know, the setting of national targets of restrictions on polluting industries, setting incentives for the transformation of all sectors, the decarbonization and just transition of all sectors, making interventions into the economy, regulations and industry, all of that can be done nationally. There's nothing to prevent the likes of the UK from doing that and doing better. On the other hand, we know that climate change is a global problem. So it's not enough to expect each country to focus solely on what it can do by itself. We also need global cooperation. Now we have to add also to the story the fact that, you know, because of historical processes of colonialism, many countries are actually extremely disadvantaged, extremely vulnerable when it comes to climate change. And so there's a need to adopt sort of collective international approaches to the reality of climate change, to adapting to climate change, to dealing with its impacts, to sharing the technology and resources that are required to prevent further climate change and to allocating in a fair way the responsibility and the capacity, the finance that would be required to implement any of these changes that are needed. There needs to be some kind of a global governance, maybe some kind of collective assessment of what is a collective and global problem. And, you know, it doesn't quite do that, but ideally in a better world, the COP would be able to provide that kind of compliance mechanism so as to compel countries who are really offering very little to increase and improve what they're offering. But I think maybe more importantly than that, at least from where I stand, the COP is a stage for countries of the global south, governments of the global south, to collectively voice their demands and negotiate for their interests in a manner which is less likely to see them yet again screwed over, you know, pardon the, the expression. The divide and rule still happens in the COP, but there's more chance of developing countries in a huge block, which is the group of 77, which is a bit of a confusing name because there's far more than 77 countries involved, but it's a sort of the main developing country block. They're, they're much less likely to be picked off and divided whenever they're able to negotiate in that way. COP is a government process, and so that's what I'm speaking to there. But of course, it also provides a stage or an arena for civil society, for social movements, for activists, for advocates, researchers to also get on the stage, take the mic, share their demands, shape really and construct the narrative to pressure decision makers. If you think about the first time that many people would have heard of Greta Thunberg was the end of 2018 after the Katowice COP24 when she gave a short speech at one of the high-level segments. It was two in the morning. I was there in the room. There were about 
max 100 other people there. But she gave a speech. It was a very good speech. And it was beamed all over the world within a couple of days. So there is also that kind of potential to use the COP as a, as a stage, as a platform. I don't buy into the idea that it can be readily dismissed, even though I have, I think, a lot of frustration and criticism for the way in which the COP is run, the way in which it's captured by vested interest and the outcomes that it produces, which are frankly leading us on a path to a three or four degree warmer world, which is an uninhabitable world for human beings, at least. I'd like to come back to the problems with COPs, but I wanted to pick up on something that you said about the fact of it being a stage, because I do think that we've seen that really highlighted, maybe, by the pandemic, the incompetence of the American administration in dealing with the pandemic, and at the same time, pulling the United States out of an agreement that I think every other country had signed. Am I right there? Yeah, there was a pretty widespread buy-in to the Paris Agreement. Right. So just ignoring the science completely and pulling the United States out of it, that got a huge amount of attention. And then Joe Biden almost immediately making it a point that that was one of the first actions that he did. That's an important gesture, is it not? Um, Yes and no. It's, I mean, it is, I think you're right to say it's a gesture and not a lot more. And, and it's it's sad that we're you know reduced to celebrating gestures and not changes in material conditions or things that we can point to to say hey the United States is actually serious about tackling the climate crisis. Uh, I think you have to look at it in a slightly more historical context as well, which is that the United States is actually not a party to many international treaties. Has always seen itself as above the kind of international law in many avenues. It's not not only climate change, they're they're not a party to the Convention on Biological Diversity. There are a number of treaties that have essentially the entirety of the rest of the world as signatories, but the United States there sees itself as exempt essentially from that. Mm. Um, But it is important, of, of course, that the United States returns. It's more important that it returns as a completely different entity because there's very little cause for optimism when you look at the track record of the United States. The United States in the run-up to the Kyoto Protocol, which was signed in 1997, negotiated as if it had every intention of being a party to that. It secured a lot of its interests in the specific clauses of that protocol. It then turned around, you know, a complete about-face, never got it through the Congress, never became a party, never wanted to bind itself to any kind of target, and then did pretty much the same thing with the Paris Agreement. So yes, the United States coming back is good, but only if the United States is willing to actually cooperate, act in good faith, and do more. But does this sort of bring us to the question of why the COP hasn't been successful for 26 years in that democratic nations don't necessarily have the executive power to carry out the comprehensive and systemic changes that the climate crisis calls for. So in a way, is the COP merely a gesture or is it something more? Yeah, it's both a gesture and it's real. You know, it's not an either or question in my view. I think to kind of understand where things have gone wrong in the past, you do have to consider the fact that there are rogue states like the US 
that have been, I think, bent on breaking the regime to their will. But I think the process began on a different footing. We started in the late 80s with an approach that was very much informed by science, not just saying that it was informed by science, but one that took the IPCC initial reports and said, okay, this gives us a kind of a budget within which to work. This gives us goals. We now just have to set targets that make sense within that, put them on timetables that make sense within that, and you know have quite a logical and collective and top-down approach to dealing with the global problem. I think maybe there was a dawning realization that the climate crisis would require us to deal with everything across the economy. Like to, to really address it requires profound transformation of all of the systems that govern our lives, the energy system, the food system, the economic system, but also like how our societies are structured. And it's not like a simple issue. And I think that there was maybe a, a lot of early optimism that it would be, that it could be dealt with in the same way that a similar but fundamentally different problem like the hole in the ozone had been dealt with through an international treaty, which was the Montreal Protocol, right? The difference between the two is that that's a very contained problem involving very specific industries that could be solved because it didn't require those kinds of profound transformations that actually decarbonizing our economy would. So there's also that going on in the background that, as you say, you know, does make it then a problem for, for essentially like you know, Western liberal democracies to, to deal with. It would require going home, telling your voters things that they might not want to hear. And lots of countries didn't want to do that. So there's all of that. There's a high prevalence of corporate interests within the UNFCCC. There's a corporate capture of it as a decision-making space. But that problem obviously extends much further down to national and maybe even local governments, which face the same exact problem. They often work in the interests of the people that fund their campaigns rather than the sort of collective. So there's many complicated problems. I don't think it can be reduced to just one line to explain why the COP hasn't functioned, because it's really a reflection on what our civilization is getting wrong in dealing with the many crises that we're facing. That was part one of Michelle and Sarah's interview with Nathan Sankey, who is the coordinator of the global campaign to demand climate justice. The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. I work long hours and, and tough, but I'm happy to have a job. Back home... My siblings can't play outside without masks on. And the pollution here is pretty bad too, so I guess our lungs aren't in the greatest shape. My country has the biggest carbon footprint in the world. And that's my fault. Because I stand for 16 hours at a time in a production line putting screens on smartphones. So I have to admit my culpability and beg your forgiveness. No, I don't have a smartphone, <laughs> but I make them, so the carbon is mine. And I feel bad, I really do. I feel bad that I am personally responsible for the climate catastrophe. And I feel bad that I won't be around to help out when things get really dire. Because uh, Shanghai is a coastal city, the most vulnerable city in the world. So 
I'll be underwater and out of the picture pretty soon. Me and 17.5 million others. And it'll serve us right. When the West point to China for our huge carbon footprint, I just want to die of embarrassment about how selfish I am. Why should the rest of the world do anything about their emissions when China is the real bad guys in all of this? We burn tons of the UK's rubbish, releasing all the toxic fumes into the air. We produce almost half of the world's steel and we feed the world's need for plastic toys and smartphones and flat screen TVs. Oh, no, no, I, I don't have a TV. I don't have time to watch TV. I work long hours and, and tough, but I'm happy to have a job. And I wish I had it in me to stand up and say, stop, close the factories. But my family need to eat. I'm sorry. I know it's selfish, but as long as you need new things, I'll keep making them. I'm just so sorry I'm ruining your future by doing that. And now for the second half of our interview with Nathan Thankey, which includes his thoughts on whether concerns about China's role in combating the climate crisis are justified and what it means that the UK is hosting COP26 in Glasgow this year. How can we address the question of those who say, what's the point of doing this when the world's single biggest emitter, that is China, it's not the biggest per capita emitter, that's I think Saudi Arabia and the United States are at least in the top five, but overall the biggest emitter is still building coal plants. The fact that China is still financing coal power across Asia is a problem. And no climate activist that I know of would just say that that's fine. And most, if you talk to Asian movements, that's exactly what they are fighting. It's not only China, though. You have Japan also funding coal all across Asia. You have Australia in the region as well. So it's wrong to exclusively single out China. Like you said, it's not the highest per capita emitter. It's also not the highest historical emitter, but it is a major player. No one, I think, denies that. China is a convenient excuse for a lot of people in the West, a boogeyman, right, to simultaneously say that we all need to do more about climate change to saying that we actually shouldn't do anything because of China. I mean, it's a very disingenuous argument made a lot of the time. But the thing I would say is that when you analyze what China is pledging to do, which in the past few months it has built upon by saying that it's aiming to reach carbon neutrality by 2060 and half emissions by, I think, 2030 or 2035. So it's pledging to do quite a lot more than certainly than the United States has committed to doing. And I think the difference as well is, you know, when China makes a, a pledge of that nature, you can be pretty sure they're going to do it as a minimum, if not exceed it because that's the nature of the state and planning and policymaking in that country. But when you actually assess what's on the table from China against a metric that would say, what is its historical responsibility and what is its current capacity to act, China is broadly meeting its fair share. It has to do more because countries have to do more, unfortunately, than what is fair. That excess has to be funded from elsewhere. You can't expect companies to do more than their share without you know, some sort of support. In contrast, 
the European Union, the United States, Japan, Russia are not doing or even pledging to do their fair share. They're about you know 20% of what their fair share would be, or in some cases 10, or in some cases, I think as Russia is, maybe about 5% of what its fair share would be. So when you take that perspective, yeah, China's still a big polluter. Its expansion of fossil fuel is a concern, but it's not, I don't think, the excuse that many people believe it to be for inaction by the UK or European Union or American governments. So what does it mean that the UK is hosting COP this year? I think, yeah, again, symbolically quite a lot, given you know the role that the UK has in causing climate change the sort of birthplace of industrialization and definitely a center also of of exporting that industrialization around the world through its empire. It's a state that's built off the profits of slavery and plunder centuries long. I think some of the the difficulties in the UK, it struggles under like a kind of culture of sometimes of sort of a subservience to that authority and, and rule, but also like this great amnesia and forgetting about everything in the past. I think all of this makes it a very symbolic host for the UK, that it's now presenting itself as green, as ambitious, as wanting to lead a change, makes it even more interesting. It adds layers. The fact that it's four nations in one adds further complexity. And the fact that the host city is in one of the nations which is in the process of at least thinking about whether or not it wants to be independent from the actual state in terms of the Scottish independence referendum, all of that adds you know, more and more layers of importance, of significance, of, of symbolism to the fact that we are hosting it. I would also say that the ways in which the environmental movement in the UK has changed in the last two or three years with the school strikes, with Extinction Rebellion, there's a rich history of direct action going back a long ways here. The fact that now we're very close to Labour being explicitly for a Green New Deal, even though there's been a change of leadership since then. But that work remains, that thinking remains. We've got unions that are now much more aware of the climate crisis and what it would take to address it. Because London being the finance capital that it is, We've got that link as well. There are many communities that have solidarity networks in the UK and in London in particular. So there's there's that side of things too. It just means that there's a very rich setting that the COP, if it goes ahead, is going to take place in. That sounds really positive. It sounds like the potential for a really rich and interesting conference. But I have a concern with the direction that our current government is going in its approach to the crisis. And that is a lot of emphasis on this phrase, net zero. And I believe that your organization has, well, I read an article, so I know that your organization believes that that concept can be dangerous. Could you talk a little bit about that and whether you agree that you think we're overemphasizing it and why it's potentially dangerous to solving the problem. Yeah, sure. So I think to understand this recent push for net zero and the UK's ambition to you know, convene a coalition uh, of countries that want to make net zero as like their flagship announcement, you kind of have to look back at its origin in the Paris Agreement, which specific language doesn't say net zero, but it talks about balancing sinks and sources of greenhouse gases. 
And so this is an acknowledgement of the reality that to live on this planet as human beings in industrial civilization requires us to emit some greenhouse gases. It's not possible to not emit any. So what we would need to do, because we have polluted so much historically up to now, and we are trying to stay within a threshold of 1.5 degrees of excess warming above the temperatures that existed prior to the Industrial Revolution. In order to do that, we're actually going to have to not just stop polluting, that would be step one, is to stop making the problem worse, but we are actually going to have to sort of go in the other direction. We're going to have to somehow bring carbon out of the atmosphere. We're going to have to lock it away in the land, in forests, in grasslands, in peatlands, wetlands, mangroves, and so on. And so from there emerged an idea, which is an old, an older idea, that instead of us actually doing step one, which is stopping to make the problem worse, we'll keep making the problem worse by digging up fossil fuels and burning them. But to kind of get around the problem and to make ourselves feel better and to make it look like we're doing something and to kind of quell some of the growing anger that you're seeing on the streets with, in this company, the likes of XR, school strikes, many other campaigns that have emerged against fracking in particular. We will offset our continued pollution by planting or expecting that we're going to be able to plant huge areas with essentially tree plantations to sort of suck down the carbon because that's you know, what plants do. None of that makes scientific or ecological sense. If you talk to anybody that studies what ecosystems are, how they function, it's not a tree plantation. It's about ecology, not about economics. But that's been the approach. Shell can come out underneath the banner of net zero and say, yeah, we're going to be net zero by 2050. And if you look at the small print, their plan for doing that involves increasing their production of fossil fuels, of gas specifically by 20%, and planting an area the size of Brazil with trees to make up for it. So there's concern very well-founded concern that calling for net zero without being very specific and qualifying what it means is just giving carte blanche to the polluters, corporate and government, to continue doing what they're doing while pretending that they are doing what we want them to do. It feels to me like we have sort of these possible ways of solving the problem. There's governments. Well, there are many reasons why governments struggle to solve the problem. There are corporations, well, who can trust them? Who can trust that they'll do the right thing? Sometimes it's indicated that it's us as individuals that we need to change our behavior, but that's insufficient. So how do we bring the energy of individual people together, their voices, what they are able to do, along with the corporate voices and the power that governments have at the COP in order to sort of turn the ship around and start moving into a more positive direction. Is it possible to do that? I don't know for sure if it's possible to do that. And I, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I have to believe that it's possible. I don't think it's guaranteed that we can do that, but I have to believe it's possible. I think that we can give ourselves a better chance of it being possible by doing things like maybe, and you know, this is kind of a controversial for some suggestion, but maybe excluding the greatest polluters from setting some of the policies around climate change. 
obviously they have to be involved in the sense that they need to transition and very, very quickly. And we're, none of us, I think, want to just throw away the concerns of workers in those industries. There has to be a just transition that is supported, led by workers in polluting industries. And we have to work with them to make that happen. But that's often against the interests of the bosses in those industries, against the CEOs of those industries. You know, it's not like you're going to a cop and sitting alongside someone who works in an oil rig who is interested and concerned about a just transition. You're going there sitting alongside corporate lobbyists. So Many of us for a long time have said you actually need to have an explicit conflict of interest policy in some of these decision-making spaces so that those whose entire business model is predicated on activities that go in the face of the objective of this policy-making body of the COP, they shouldn't be allowed to be in the room having the conversation. But it wouldn't be a silver bullet. To your question about how do we harness the energy of individuals, and my view is that human beings are social creatures and I'll always sort of believe in that people power fighting alongside each other in a collective, in a social movement, rather than taking on the weight of the world as individuals or expecting that we could, you know, there's, I don't think a lot of room for that kind of thinking. Obviously we need leaders and we might need spokespeople. We might need people that have a higher profile than others. But the idea is that they always should serve the movement. And that's empowering, actually, because if you feel it yourself just as an individual, you feel very powerless. There are not enough hours in the day. You're only one person. You can only know so much in your entire lifetime. You can only do so much. But that quickly gets put in perspective when you see yourself as part of something greater than yourself. Big thank you to Nathan Sankey of the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice for that interview. And as always, we will include the relevant links in our show description on our Cambridge 105 radio page. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 radio. Remember, you can also listen to our show on demand on our Mixcloud channel and the Cambridge 105 radio listen again feature. So in the first part, we looked at what a COP climate meeting is and the organisations taking part. And now we're going to turn to the national scene here in the UK with an interview with Juan Nying, an organiser for the UK COP26 coalition, which is setting up a series of talks and actions building up to the Glasgow conference. You might be surprised to know that the focus of the national coalition is global climate justice. Here's our reporter Sheena with that conversation. COP26 Coalition is a coalition of UK civil society groups from diverse constituencies such as trade unions, development and environment NGOs, direct action groups, climate justice organisations, migrant and racial justice networks, faith groups and student movements organising together to mobilise for the UN climate change negotiations in Glasgow 2021. I'm delighted today to be interviewing Wong Nguyen, who is actually one of the coordinators there. So, Wang. That's an incredibly diverse range of groups involved with a big range of interests. What's it like to try and bring them together? 
It's quite overwhelming, but positive experience, I'd say, because of so many groups. There's so many different things happening in the coalition. There's discussions around the trade union movement and how to best mobilize around this. There's thoughts of bringing together a scientist caucus, how we can organize in a more justice-centered way in the climate movement. So it's really like conversations from all ends of the climate movement that come together in the COP26 coalition. So the coalition brings together all these UK groups, but as you said, one of its focuses is climate justice, which is a global question. I learned a lot about this through being involved in one of the coalition's working groups, the Global Working Group, which organises a number of international assemblies. Can you just explain for our listeners why a UK coalition is concerned about global justice. The COP26 coalition tries to bring together all these diverse voices to be a climate justice-centered voice that opens spaces for transformative organizing. And for that, we want to like bring in voices from the global south first and foremost to shape our policy perspectives, our political demands, and the nature of our mobilizations. And that's why the global working group is organizing international assemblies, forming an international committee, so that those who are most affected by climate change lead the conversation in the coalition. What we also have is a Glasgow local group because the COP26 is probably COVID allowing taking place in Glasgow in Scotland and we want to like give it a grounding so that the people of Glasgow don't think like oh yeah what's these weird hippies doing here all these people coming to the streets of Glasgow and then going away again after a few weeks we want the city to like really take something from it we want citizens of Glasgow to be taking part in the mobilizations leading the mobilizations together with our international allies and we want everyone who comes to Glasgow for the mobilizations to feel as welcome and as supported as possible. Can you tell me more about the working groups? What other issues are you getting together to work on? Additionally, we have mobilizations and political strategy working groups. So if you're thinking about how we should protest, um, how we should organize rallies, marches, different actions, how do we do that before COP26, during COP26, but also after COP26, that's what the mobilizations working group is for, where we think about strategies, how we can keep up the pressure, hold the government's feet to the fire and continue to escalate over the summer towards COP. And in terms of the political strategy working group is more concerned on the policy side of things, where lots of the more traditional NGOs come together, but also grassroots group to discuss policy developments, to discuss what we hear from our movement, also from governments, what different topics that are controversial within the climate movement are, and what are the different strategic concerns and thoughts behind them. So we organized a couple of discussions on, for example, nature-based solutions, on what net zero means and whether it's actually a good thing or not and going to continue to do that. So the coalition is really a, a really good place to look at the complexities about the whole of the climate situation. Yeah, and it has been set up to be this diverse but also dissenting voice in the conversation because the British, the European and the international climate movement has so many different facets to it. There's a lot of different perspectives and voices to bring together. And part of the journey of the COP26 coalition is to bring these together and use them to go against the governments of the world who are going to tell us that they have everything under control, that we don't need to worry about climate change at all because they have all these fixes, all these technological solutions. And what we are trying to do is to put a stop to that, to call out some of the false solutions they are trying to push on us and to form a space where people can think about actual already existing solutions, mostly being put forward by those living on the front lines of climate change. 
what we are mainly thinking about is how can we amplify the voices who disagree with the entire process, how we can push for the best outcome possible, but also to use the momentum of COP26 as a staging point for the climate movement beyond COP26. Because COP26 is important, but what is more important to us is that we can use the space to develop our movement, to build capacity for system change and to build power from the ground up. That's what the coalition is aiming for most. So you used the words from the ground up. That was what you called one of the recent series of events which you organised. And we thought it was such a good title that we pinched it for this episode. Good title. <laughs> As is the title of your newsletter, The Rising Clyde, which I think is also mm. an excellent title. So can you tell us a bit more about these events from the ground up? And there was another series called Boiling Point. Just an introduction, because I believe most of the events are available online and we'll share that link in our show description. Yeah, one of the aims of the coalition is to provide both political education as well as spaces for sharing experiences and connecting struggles. And that's not only limited to the COP26 process as such, which is important. And we organized a Boiling Point speaker series on this, what the COP is and where it comes from and where it's going. But what is also important to us is to like show what struggles are currently going on in the climate movement what are common themes behind them and how do they connect? For example, what has HS2 in common with other mega projects around the world and how can we strategize around stopping them? Or how do anti-racist struggles around the world connect to each other and what does that mean for climate justice struggles? And for that, we organized a five-day festival online when COP26 was supposed to take place in November 2021. And we tried to bring together voices from across the movement into our space to discuss false solutions, but also positive solutions that exist on the ground already. So that's why we called it From the Ground Up, because that is the source for system change that is where change is going to come from, not from the government's top down, not from the COP process, but from the people on the ground that are pushing for systemic change. And some of them are available, aren't they, on the COP26 YouTube channel? Yeah, we had like 53 sessions with 8,000 registered participants, and we recorded most of the sessions. If you go on our YouTube page, you can still watch them. And you're doing another From the Ground Up in a couple of months' time, yeah? It's actually in about one month's time. We did at the last From the Ground Up conference was to show why we should take action, why there's so many struggles going on and what connects them. And we want to like continue that conversation, not about the why, but how to take action. Um, so what is the common theme, the strategies, the tactics, and the things behind action around climate justice? Um, what is the theory of change? How do we produce change in our society? Is it the correct way that we're doing it? What are other tactics and different contexts that have come up in our movement? So is marching all to London, blocking government buildings the best way? Or should we go to coal mines? Are blockades the best way to do things? Are there legal routes that are more effective and better? Is it the safest way of doing things? What about like striking? How do you organize your workplace? So these kind of conversations are in urgent need of happening because the climate movement had ran out of steam because of Corona and other reasons. There needs to be a reflection point where we go from here. So that is going to be from the ground up too. That's going to be at the end of March, 27th to 28th of March. And everyone's welcome to come. We have a really exciting set of themes lined out already from abolition, uh, anti-racist struggles to public transport and retrofitting and how the trade union movement organizes around these things and to Scottish independence, to indigenous struggles and what tactics indigenous movements are using. All these things 
uh, struggles towards system change that are either in the climate movement or adjacent to the climate movement, and we're trying to bring them together. I look forward to that. How do people sign up if they'd like to attend some of the events? So we are going to very soon put out a Eventbrite registration form, and people can sign up over there. And um, if there's individuals or groups who might be interested in getting more involved in the coalition, having heard what it's all about, what's the best first step for people, do you think? So I think the best first step is to just show up at some of our working group meetings. So if your group wants to get involved, it's best to think about how you can lend capacity to the COP26 coalition and to our mobilization efforts. So if you're really good at comms, for example, join the comms working group. If you're good at social media, join that working group. We also host a couple of public events where you can kind of like have a peek at what the coalition is doing, like come to From the Ground Up, for example, where you can take part in the discussions, come to the all coalition meetings or to our socials to like just get to know us. But if your organization wants to organize with us, uh, the working groups are the way. And to find out more about the coalition and how to get involved, you can visit the website at cop26coalition.org or search for COP26 Coalition. We'll also include that link in our show description on the Cambridge 105 Radio website. And one final question. Assuming the COP does go ahead in Glasgow this November, what role will the coalition take there? So that's a big if, just to say that. There's quite a lot of discussions that uh, that is possible that the COP is going to be online, that civil society participation is going to be restricted. So if the COP goes ahead in person, as if normal, we would be organizing a big march, a big convention center where we would hold alternative people summits, bringing voices of the world together to speak truth to power. But it looks like there's going to be loads of travel restrictions. We are hearing from our international allies that lots of international groups won't be vaccinated, won't be able to risk COVID infections and transmissions by coming to Glasgow next year. So that means our role is to enable these groups that are the most important voices in the process to still take part in the rallies and the protests somehow. So it's most likely that we will have a hybrid people summit with both on the ground presence in Glasgow, as well as online, where we will live stream lots of what is happening to people across the world so that everyone can take part in the discussions. We will also be organizing a international day of action on November the 6th. So if you're not in the UK, if you're not able to travel, that's not a problem. Take to the streets with us on November the 6th across the world, across all continents to send a message to all the governments that are involved in the process. We also need to decentralize all UK mobilizations. So even if you can't come to COP26 in Glasgow, if you're in Cambridge or if you're in Wales, mobilize in your home right now up to COP to put pressure on the governments now and bring as many people to the streets as possible. If we manage to have a global mobilization in many different countries, not only the UK, that might be a bigger and a more impactful uh, mobilization. If we can mobilize from Brazil to South Africa to Glasgow to Australia, then that would be that would be a good thing, I think. That was Huang Nying of the UK COP26 coalition talking to Sheena Mooney. Sheena followed up with Huang and asked what the indigenous and locally based climate solutions that he mentioned are. They're things like decentralized community-owned energy systems and energy cooperatives, community-level food systems, food sovereignty in general, community forest management, and dismantling corporate power, and so forth. And we'll look further into these ideas in future shows. Thanks, Juan and Sheena. On air across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. For our last bit, keeping it local, 
I had a quick chat with Jill Eastland, who is one of the organisers of the Cambridge group of the COP26 coalition, to find out what's going on here in our neck of the woods. It turns out that art is very much on the agenda. COP26 coalition is a fantastic, inspiring coalition that really hears from Indigenous people, from poorer sectors of society, and it really is from the ground up. So I'm the environmental representative for Artists' Union England and a national executive officer. And so I got involved in COP26 coalition through that. And I'm a part of the trade union group and a part of the arts and culture group as well. And I was very, very inspired by what they've been doing, the COP26 coalition. So together with a fellow union worker from National Education Union, we started a local group. And I particularly wanted to be involved because I wanted to ensure that it was about system change as well as climate justice, not just about climate change. In Cambridge, we've tried to bring groups together, started to. We've only had one meeting so far. Presumably on Zoom at the moment? On Zoom, yeah. We did quite wide invites. Using the example of the COP26 coalition, we didn't limit those invites to environmental groups. We also invited groups that are involved with social justice. A lot of the trade unions and the Trades Council, NEU is very active, National Education Union, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace. And yeah, we just want to bring more of the groups together. And if that could be something that we keep going after COP26, I think that would be wonderful as well so that we can support each other. So tell me, what's the feeling amongst the local coalition group following on from your meeting? A lot of people are very focused on working locally rather than nationally or globally. And so we looked at what we could do locally to begin with and how we could reach out to people locally, how we could reach out more widely, what the barriers were maybe to getting involved in environmental action and how we could work towards overcoming those. We've started making plans for creative resistance as well. And one of the most exciting one is a relaunch of the umbilical cord which Kathy Dunbar and myself are involved in and it drew inspiration from a CND action which was a piece of pink knitting that extended all the way from Aldermaston to Burfield. So we're making an umbilical cord out of waste pieces of yarn, reusing things, plastics, anything you like really. And I once made one before, which I used to wrap around an entire building. So we're thinking on those terms that it might span miles and miles even, and that we might be able to wrap it round where the COP26 talks are taking place or to block some of the roads nearby. It's about our connections to each other, our connections to people who are experiencing flooding already in other countries and to the earth. I understand, Jill, that your mum is from Mauritius and that climate change has had a direct effect on your family already. Mauritius, the coral reefs are already deteriorating and they are a protective coral reef. They are really, really important to the livelihoods and to the welfare of people and animals and plants in Mauritius. 
the worry for Mauritius or one of the biggest worries is the increasing ferocity of cyclones rather than flooding. So when I was little and growing up, there used to be regular cyclones then. So there's always been cyclones in Mauritius. And when a cyclone happened, we wouldn't always know what had happened to our family. So my mum's sister, for example, my aunt, she was very poor and we couldn't get hold of them because phones would be down and all that kind of stuff. And I've been doing a piece of environmental work with Mauritius because I don't know if you heard about the oil spill recently. So through the TUC... We connected with people in Mauritius and were able to send support and ask what they needed and things like that because there was a huge oil spill there not that long ago, the end of last year. They were amazing because it was people power that cleaned it up, not governments, not shipping companies or oil companies responsible, but actual just people. And so those kind of local and global connections have really been on my mind and the umbilical cord is a way of saying that we are all tied together, that this matters to all of us. So do you think there will be, from the local climate coalition, a group going down to Glasgow? Yes, I do. So I think both will happen, local actions and action in Glasgow. I mean, I think it's a huge thing that the COP is happening in Britain. It really is a huge opportunity to hold our own government to account as well as other countries. So what would the best outcome for you be for COP26? It's really hard to know. I think that the whole system is rotten. We exploit people and the planet equally and both need to change. If people want to get involved, how can they get in touch with you, Jill? They could email me at jilleastland at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Jill. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks to Jill Eastland for that interview on the Cambridge COP26 Coalition Group. We'll update our information with their contact details when they're up and running. And that's all we've got time for this week. Please do get in touch with your thoughts and any suggestions by writing to 7th Generation, that's 7th Generation, at cambridge105.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. For the seventh generation on Cambridge 105 Radio, across the city in South Cambridgeshire, I've been Nick Skelton, and I and the team will be back next month. Thanks for listening, and remember to tell your friends.